we have been working through uh, the New Testament in sort of an extended series in which we are taking a book a week, more or less, and talking about the general themes that crop up in those texts so that when you go to read them yourselves, you have a general grid with which or within which to understand what, has, what it is that you're reading. Today, we're going to kind of step away from that as we've, we've prayed about. Obviously, we're, we're coming up on a pretty big uh, decision that the country's going to be making. We're obviously in the midst of that. I don't know if you've been driving around downtown, but I have this week coming to the office and the line around the election office is down around the corner. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about, about that and, and how we can respond as a church and, and what God might be calling us to do in the midst of that. What, you know, I've told you before, what I'm not going to stand up here to do is, is tell you how to vote. That's between you and God. Uh, you are free with your Christian conscience and through prayer, hopefully, to to make a wise decision as far as that goes. But I do want to talk today a little bit about as the days come, and as we said in two days, we, we have election day, but the chances are we're not going to know immediately what the solution is. But as those days sort of tick off, how we can, as, as followers of Christ, uh, respond in that time. To do that, we're going to look at uh, a passage from Romans today. And like I said, we have been looking through the books of the New Testament and attempting to sort of generalize and talk about the books as a whole. There's no way we're going to do that today. Uh, we are not ready to talk about Romans yet, but the scripture that, that Paul uses as he introduces his letter to the Romans um, is applicable to what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to use it as our basis for conversation today. And so let's read that now. It is Romans 1. It's verses 8 through 18 through 24. It's the first half of 24 we'll read today. And it reads as follows. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness, and those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's the reading of the word of God. So today, as I said, we're going to um, use this as our basis. We are going to talk a little about the scripture, um, try to open it up a little bit so we can begin to understand what it is that Paul's saying. Uh, I mentioned of course, that this is a letter to the Romans. This was thought to be Paul's last letter, um, his, his sort of great letter, and it's the, one of the reasons it comes first right after Acts as, as we open up in our New Testament the canon, the, the letters to Paul. And it pulls together a lot of themes as a letter that Paul had been talking about in his previous letters or his other letters that you read in the New Testament. And for a lot of people, if you ask them what, what book they're going to take to the desert island. Uh, a lot of people answer this one because it just in, encompasses so much of the New Testament and, and God's truth, Jesus's truth, uh, and what Paul had to speak to us. And so that's, that's sort of what the letter is, and that's about all I'm going to say about that today. But as we open this, this section we read today, it's, it's obviously not the happiest thing. <laughs> I mean, how many, how many people heard that and were like, yay, church today, right? Talking about the wrath of God is probably not high on the list, we are, and I personally am really long and heavy on God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness and his reconciliation. And I think that, you know, I think Paul would agree that that's the message that Jesus brings to us from God. But this is also an important message. And what Paul is trying to do is set the stage for the letter and the message that's coming. And so he opens up talking about wrath. 
And within the biblical context, wrath is not, um, not a foreign concept. It has a long history within the Old Testament and, and Judaism, and has, it's a concept that Paul would have been knowledge of and, and pulling together. And in the Old Testament, the idea or the concept of wrath is tied up with the Lord's Day, the Day of Judgment, so that final day, and, and, and all of the promises that God had made to his people that culmination, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God has made to Abraham, all those ideas are wrapped up together. And so we have a tendency perhaps to, to read the word wrath and think uh, that it is somehow some sort of irrational passion. If, you, if, you've, if you're a parent, you've probably lost your temper now and then, right? I know I've got five small ones that I'd like to say that doesn't happen, but it certainly does, right? And too often, I think we, we think about wrath and we have this picture of you know, an adult, you know, flying off the handle with their kids or someone who's just really kind of lost their way and sort of snapped for the moment and screaming or yelling and, and sort of this irrational response that is, is not applicable or appropriate for the situation. And that is not at all what biblical wrath is. Wrath, the biblical wrath that Paul is talking about here and that the, the Old Testament has spoken of uh, and, and the New Testament does as well, is a righteous or justice indignation in the face of sin. And so this is God's right response, the only response he potentially, or really the only response he could have in the face of evil and sin and the devastation that wreaks havoc on the human race, on his creation. And while we probably don't like thinking about God as an angry God, think for a minute, what, what would God be if he weren't mad at child abuse or trafficking? Think about the horrors of the 20th century. Think about the unrest and, and the trouble that we see in our world today. If God is not a God that is upset by that, well, he can't be a good God, right? Even we look around and see these horrible injustices and we get angry. There's a fire that's sort of stoked within our soul, I hope, at these true injustices. And there's what we might call a holy rage that burns with us and, and we're upset, we're mad. At, at what we see. And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about the wrath of God. It is the stirring of God in response to the brokenness that we have brought about in our world, right? And so he is mad about the sin. He's mad about the brokenness. He's mad that his creation has gone off track, has been tainted, and, and is, is ultimately on the path to destruction, certainly as Paul writes this letter. And if God were not mad at that, he arguably would not be a God worth loving and praising. So a, a good and, and loving God has to get upset. And so it is that upset response, that is that madness, that wrath that Paul is referencing here. And Paul does understand that our, our actions have certainly religious, but also moral implications. And that's what he's going on to talk about in this section today. And this idea of wrath for Paul, uh, and, and therefore for us, is this is, a, this is a big word we've used it before, but it's an eschatological one. And so the eschaton is the, the coming day, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy, the, the, the next age, right? The end age. When we talk about something being eschatological, we mean that it pertains to that coming age. And when we talk about things like kingdom, um, we talk about the fulfillment, we talk about the promises that we live in as Christians, and we talk about the eschaton and eschatology, what we're, we're implying and what we're talking about is the fact that it's this now but not yet reality. And we've, we've talked about this, and you've probably heard this talked about before uh, by more than just me, but the idea that the blessings and the love and the new creation that we are called to be in Christ is a now reality. It is something that we're called to do, to live in, to live out now, but it will not be ultimately fulfilled until the second coming and, and the, the new creation. Everybody understands that, right? Well, wrath works the same way, 
right? Wrath is the, God's judgment is the flip side. And so just, just as there is blessing that is to be now, there is also the outworking of God's upsetness, his wrath, his punishment. And it will ultimately be brought by the judge, Jesus, who sits on the throne and comes back to judge us. And that ultimate wrath will be doled out. And I'm not going to stand up here today and tell you what that is or, or you know, pretend to know exactly how that all works out. But what I can say, and what Paul is pointing to, is that there's also a now present reality of that wrath, and that that's what he's now going to talk about. What is the object of that wrath? If we turn here into our the second verse that we're into today, that object of that wrath is those who have done something in particular. Can you, those of you who can see the screen, what have they done? Why is he mad? Their behavior. Their behavior. I heard something else. They've made their own gods. What does he say here uh, in verse 19? He says, it's revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth, right? And so the crux of what Paul is saying that God is mad at is the fact that the truth has been squelched, suppressed. And that's a, that's a big term, but that ultimately is what God is mad about, right? He says, he goes on then in verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain, right? It can be seen, right? God, God has, has shown them certain things, because God, it says, because God has shown it to me. It says, ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power, his divine nature, though they're invisible, they're obvious. And he says, so what he's saying is, look, people, you can look around and see and witness the world, the creation, and, and know that there's a God. And what he goes on to talk about is that these wickedness people, these people, because of their wickedness, he says, and let's, I'm not going to get in and we're not going to parse the Greek out, but I'll just tell you that wickedness translates literally to unjust action. Right? So again, we have this idea of this sort of uh, abstract or amorphous concept of wickedness, this like seething evil. And, and what the word actually means is just unjust action, unrighteous action. And so it's not this like dark cloud force satanic thing that's come in. It's simply the people have acted unjustly and by acting unjustly have suppressed the truth. And that's what God is mad at. That is what is bringing down his wrath causing what we're going to get into in a minute, but it's really important, especially for a conversation today, that you understand that the problem here is the people's unwillingness to recognize the truth that God has shown them. That's the problem that Paul's telling us is, is upset, and it causes all sorts of stuff. We're going to get into that in a second, but that's where it starts. Then in 19, as we read, it says it gets into uh, what we would call sort of natural law, and so in this section, when God's talking about truth, he's not talking about the truth of the gospel. Paul's not arguing that you can look at a tree outside and a river, and a beautiful scene, and deduce that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, okay? That is the truth of the gospel. That is a revelation made through and by Jesus in his life. That is not the truth Paul speaks of here. Paul is speaking of the truth that there is a God, that he is mighty, that he is powerful, and that he is worthy of glory and honor and praise, whoever and whatever he is. So it is that core truth that you can look at the world, and many people throughout time have been convinced Look at this world. It must have been created. There must be a good creator that has made this, and whoever that is is worthy of honor and praise. And that's the truth that Paul is saying that the Gentiles, remember, we're writing to the church in Rome, right? The, the seat of the, the Roman power, the pagan world, the Gentile nation, the non-Christians, and it is aspects of that culture that he's directly referencing here. And as he's talking about suppressing truth and turning away for idols and uh, images of animals. Certainly we have a, a story in our Old Testament about that happening within Judaism, but he's talking in particular and pointedly about the pagan culture. And if you know anything about 
philosophy and the history of philosophy, you know that early on there were lots of philosophers who deduced through their thinking that there was this God. God or a God being, certainly not the Christian God, but God was, small g God, was something that was always posited or often posited as sort of the unmoved, unmoved mover or the initial cause. There had to be something that created this. Right? And so even Gentile pagan philosophers were coming to the conclusions that there has to be this God. And what Paul is saying is that you know it's there, yet you turn your back um, and you end up suppressing the truth. And so he says in verse 22 that they give up the revelation that God has attempted to show them. And I will say also, as a, as a philosophy major in college, I've mentioned that that's what I studied. One of the biggest lessons I walked away from is that it doesn't work. Right? The, the, the gospel actually is true. The thing about philosophy is, is, is one philosopher comes right after the other. Everybody thinks they've got it solved. The next one says, nope, you, you messed up here, or you, you didn't think this through right, or you got this wrong. And that just happens over and over and over and over. So thousands of years ago, man decided, hey, we did exactly what Paul says we did here. Right? Man said, hey, we can reason our way to God. We don't need God's revelation. We don't need anything special from God. We can look around the world. We can use our brains because we're smart people and we can come up with truth. And if you have heard the term postmodernism, which is sort of seeded into our culture now, is this idea that there is no truth. There can be no truth or you can't know what truth is. Uh, philosopher said, Nietzsche said, all, all claims to truth are actually just claims to power and nothing more. And so there is now this sort of general understanding that truth can't be known. And that is a logical outworking of what Paul is talking about here. 2,000 years after what Paul wrote, we're seeing some of the, the outworking and in some ways and what Paul says is the wrath of God being instilled because we have turned our backs on the revelation of God, instead relied upon our own brains and our own thinking, and it has led us into this point where philosophers just throw up their hands and say, we can't know what truth is. The best we can do is know what we experience, and that's all we can do. And that is the history of philosophy. And so we see some of what Paul has, has been working out here. And he's told, actually, as Ricky mentioned here towards verse 23, towards the end of what we're reading, says that uh, they went after idols, right? So they make images resembling mortal human beings and birds and four-footed animals. Talked about the truth of the, the heart of God is that if he's, if he's good, he also has to be wrathful and indignant and upset at sin. The other truth that lies behind this statement that Paul is making is that the heart of man seeks to worship something. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but this is what we're, we're witnessing as Paul writes, right? The, the human heart gave up on God. They turned their back from, from nature and the things that they could see, the, the knowledge that God has revealed through his creation that he exists, and instead they've turned towards idols, as Ricky said, because we all are wired with God's image in us. We all are wired to be connected to that creator. That's how God has made us. That's what it means to be a son or daughter uh, of the living God, to be a brother of Christ. Whether or not we believe Jesus or not, that's how we're made. Right? Everyone longs to love something. And we certainly can see in our time, and Paul did in his, that when you remove God from the equation, you're still left with that hunger, with that longing, that need to worship something, that need to follow something that's greater than yourself. Every human being has that need, even if you don't want to admit it. You need to be part of something that's greater than yourself. All the great movements of human history have tapped into that reality. And what Paul is saying is that when you remove God from that equation, you end up with an idol of some form or fashion. 
right? And it's either a human form or animal form, or it's been other things as well throughout human history, but that's the truth. And then in verse 24a, the last little bit he said, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. And he goes on to describe quite a number of uh, what, we, what we would call sinful actions. I'm going to skip down into 28. I'm just going to read. We don't have on the screen today. Towards the end of this section, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right? So he's back to his point that they've turned their back on God. He said, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now here's one of the big points I want to make today. Why did they become those things? They reject the truth and God does what? In his wrath, because they reject the truth, he turns them over to those things. In other, you know, if you think back to the story of Pharaoh, you hear about God hardening their hearts. Paul will use that term. They suppress the truth. God, in his wrath, turns them over to these things. Now, these things are lists that if we had to list sins, those things would be on it, right? If you think of sins, it's those things and probably a few more. But what Paul says is not that. Paul says that the sin is turning your back on the truth. The sin is suppressing truth, and God's wrath is giving you over to that. So the acts that we usually associate with sin, as Paul discusses it here today, are actually the outworking of the sin. Too often we think of lying as sin, or cheating as sin, or hating as sin. Those aren't actually the sin. The sin is turning your back on God. Those are the things that you fall into when you say, I don't need you, God, and God says, okay, go your own way. That's what happens, right? And so as Paul is opening his letter to the Romans, he's wanting everyone to understand that these sorts of things, these actions, these sort of horrible things that, that he sees the pagan culture falling into are the outworking of the wrath of God. I said the wrath of God is both a future reality and a, a present reality, but a future fulfillment, right? The present reality, that's it. The strife, the hatred, the malice, the murder, the wickedness, that is the outworking of God's wrath against the people who have suppressed the truth and turned their back. And so we're in some ways back to the beginning of what Paul had to say. And we have to ask the question, we've, we've, we've sort of already answered, so we won't belabor the point, but why do they find themselves in that place? Why is it that they, the pagan culture finds them and the, and the culture that Jesus, or well, certainly that Jesus came to, but that Paul is writing to, finds themselves in such disarray and problem, it is certainly, as we said, that they first and foremost rejected the truth. It starts there. Paul says, he says, because those who know the truth suppress it. So it's not that they're just ignorant. It's not that they just don't know it. It's that they know it. There are people who know it, right? There were philosophers who said this God exists, some God exists. And yet the culture and the, the majority of people and the people who stood, should stand up and say, yes, this, this God exists, let's go find him. Instead say, no, let's forget it. Let's go our own way. Let's worship idols. Let's do something else. And it's, it's that reason that all of this flows into their lives. They give up God's favor and, said, uh, and instead pick up their own wise thoughts, which we know ultimately has brought us to our current scenario in the world in which 
no one believes that truth exists at all. You try to tell them that what truth is, and they say, okay, well, that's fine for you, but I believe this. You may have heard that in some form or fashion. I know I've heard it a ton. Well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Right? That, that is a sentiment that is, that is firmly rooted in our world, in our culture, here in our town. And it all stems from a reluctance to accept the truth of God and instead rely on our own reason because our reason fails us. And so in this, Paul makes the argument that those who've suppressed the truth, the natural law, the truth that they see in the world, have led to the strife, the unrest, the hatred, selfishness, the, the, the sins, the evil of the world that has manifested itself, the wrath of God worked out in the culture, has all stemmed from the suppression of the truth that is clearly seen in the world. In the New Testament, this is, this is a way of arguing uh, that was around in uh, Judaism. We see the rabbis do it all the time, and, and it's, a, it's called an argument from a minor to a major. And Jesus uses this, and he says, I think, think back if, if you think when he says, um, you know, look around, you see the sparrows, right? They're clothed in glory. He says, the flowers are clothed in glory. The sparrows are taken care of. And he says, how much more does your God love you? And won't he take care of you even more? And so it's an argument from a minor to a major, a, a little thing, a sparrow or a flower in the lily in the field to you, the big thing, the relationship that God has with his, the crown of his creation, right? So this is a, like a, a way to make an argument. And I want to do something similar today. And my point is this, if we, or rather if the pagans suppress the natural law, the truth that is to be found in nature, and they call down upon themselves the wrath of God and experience this list of things, this brokenness, how much more then if we suppress the truth inherent in the gospel? All right, so here's my minor, natural law, the truth that God has revealed in nature. Here's my major, the gospel truth that Jesus is the son of the living God died, resurrected, here to bring reconciliation, peace, love, and mercy. If the pagans suppress that truth, if they fail to stand up and say, this is God's truth, if instead they take up the arguments of the day, the philosophy of the day, and live in that light, and they find themselves in this mess, what's going to happen if we decide we're going to be quiet, we're going to suppress the truth that we've been given through Jesus, the much greater truth? How much greater is the wrath that will come upon us and our land? you follow that? Another way of saying it, we are in possession of a much greater truth than they would have had. Had they paid attention to the, nat to the natural law, they would have known there was a God. We know there's a God. We also know that there's a son. There's a Messiah. There's a sacrifice. There's a resurrection. There's a reconciliation. There is kingdom life to be had. If we suppress that truth, how much more do we call down the wrath of God on us? And what is that wrath of God? What will happen, using Paul's example? Yeah, we'll be turned over to our debased mind. We find ourselves picking up arguments of the culture, philosophical arguments. They make sense. They do. I told you, I spent years studying philosophical and theological arguments. They make sense, but they're not true. If Jesus comes to us, and we have his words recorded for us, and he says, Love and care for the hungry. Care for the poor. Love the foreigner, the immigrant. And I say, but we have a, we have a, we have a system, an economic system that says 
you know, and if, if we let too many immigrants in, or if, if we put too many people on welfare, or we do this, the system's gonna, the system's gonna, gonna fail. What have I done? I've done exactly this. Jesus says, take care of them. Jesus says, love them. The truth says, love. And my political argument says, no. I've done this. If Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger for justice, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. And Tuesday rolls around, and my candidate loses, and I take to the streets, or I get on Facebook, and I start pounding on my keys, and I get angry, and I rant, and I just pour fuel on the fire of the unrest that I pray to God does not come. What have I done? I've done this. If my candidate wins on Tuesday, and there's a whole segment of the population that's upset and angry, and rather than reaching out in love and understanding and reconciliation and trying to find peace, I get mad at them or I fight back. I don't listen to them. I don't seek to understand, but rather make it worse. What have I done? Done this. Jesus says, pretty pointedly, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If the coming weeks come and things get terrible and we get angry and spiteful, let's be real clear. There are Democrats in this room. There are Republicans in this room, right? And so what we're talking about potentially in reality is getting mad and angry with your brother or sister in Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're saying, and what we potentially are doing, should we choose to turn our back on God, is say, Jesus, your family doesn't matter to me more than my political affiliation. My political beliefs, my philosophy, they matter more to me than your death and resurrection and the family you came to create, that you called me into, that you called my Democrat or my Republican or my Independent or my couldn't care less and didn't vote, brother and sister. I care more about what I think politically than them and your truth. We have an opportunity in the coming days. I know not gonna, it's not an, it is an opportunity. It is a test. How are we going to respond to what comes? I don't know what's going to happen. If you listen to the pundits, we're, in, we're set for strife. I saw, I think it was Australia yesterday, issued a uh, travel advisory not to come to the United States because of potential civil unrest. Right? So this, you've heard it, you've seen it on the news. Right? This is, this is a, a real thing that could be coming. I pray to God it doesn't. And I am thankful to live in Zanesville where I don't think that's going to come here, but that's not to say it won't come somewhere. And that doesn't mean that just because people don't take this to, this, to Maple Avenue or to downtown Main Street here in Zanesville, Ohio, it doesn't mean that people aren't going to be upset, ticked off, doesn't mean that they're not going to go to Facebook or see you out and, and say something. What are you going to do? Are you going to take up a philosophical and political argument? Is that how you're going to identify yourself? Is that how I'm going to, like, I'm in that group too, guys. <laughs> I get heated over some of these issues too, because I have strong beliefs. But the question is, do those beliefs override the instruction that we have from Jesus? Who are we? Are you first and foremost Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever, however you identify yourself, are you first and foremost 
a son, a daughter, child of God, a brother and sister of Christ who has commanded us to love, who has commanded us to seek peace, reconciliation, understanding. If you remember, I believe it was in 2014, remember when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine? To me, it seems like yesterday. I can remember uh, Twitter was around and I, Periscope was a thing, which is like live, uh, basically a live stream from anywhere in the world. And I remember actually sitting at my desk watching as Russian helicopters flew overhead, you know, people in Ukraine like literally live streaming what was going on. It was, it was crazy if, if you remember it. I will never forget this image. These are the streets of Ukraine in Kiev. On the one side, you have the riot police. On the other side, from where this picture is taken, are all the protesters, the rioters, the revolutionaries or rebels who were fighting against the invasion. And in the middle of the street come these three Orthodox priests with a bullhorn. And they stood between them and they prayed. Hour after hour, day after day. There are other images of a priest holding a cross in front of the rebels with the guards behind them with a gun at his back praying. This image is burned in my brain. It was, I, I remember I, I grabbed it and I threw it on, on Instagram, just, you know, something with the caption of, like, you know, this, this is the church. That's the church. Daniel, com I went back to my Instagram, Daniel commented, <laughs> right, six, eight years ago, whatever. You know what he said? He said, they better be praying hard. <laughs> and I'm sure they were. Now, I don't think that's coming. I pray that that's not coming for us. I don't put that up there to scare you and add to that whole hysteria. I, I show you this because it made such a mark in my brain and for me helped identify what, what is the church. That's the church. You want to know what our job is in the coming days and weeks? It's that. We are the peacemakers. We are the ones who speak God's truth in the middle of turmoil and chaos. When all else, all others have turned their back on the truth of God, and God's wrath has come upon them, and they are lying and cheating and fighting and deceitful and hateful towards one another, we must be the ones that stand up in the middle of it and speak God's truth. Speak peace and love and reconciliation, calm, calling our brothers and sisters in the church and those outside of it back to God's peace and God's truth. That's what the church is. That's what we ought to be doing. I'm gonna leave this image up for a minute. I'm gonna ask Daniel to come up. He's gonna just play a little sort of music. And I'm gonna ask us for about three, four minutes, uh, just to spend a little bit of time in prayer, in reflection. We, we opened today at Ricky, pray f, you know, help us pray for the coming election. I wanna I want ask you to do that again, yourself, between you and God, all of us together, to pray for what's coming, to pray that his will be done. I'll be honest, I, the first time I walked into this building, I saw your painting of Jesus praying. And I thought, I thought to myself, well, that's kind of a, a different, I don't want to say odd, but that's a, that's a different image to have above the altar in the front of the church. Usually, it's, a, it's what is behind you. It's the, it's the Jesus carrying the lambs, or it's a cross. It's, it's one of those images of Jesus that we focus on. But as I was falling asleep last night, I remembered this picture. What is this moment? What was that? It's the prayer before he goes to the cross. He's in Gethsemane, right? You see Jesus and you see the three disciples off 
We're told they fell asleep. This is right before the soldier shows up. What does Jesus pray? What is he saying in that picture? Not my will, but thy will be done. Here's a moment where Jesus knows what's coming. This is why he's here. And Jesus, having both a divine and a human will, right, he is both. I mean, I don't want to go to the cross, and neither did he. And he's praying, calling out to God, please take this cup from me. But in the end, he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so as we spend time in prayer today, I want you to focus on that image, that prayer that Jesus called out to God. And I, I know you all have strong political beliefs, and that's fine. For this moment, I want you to pray to God. Say, God, I know I want this. But what I want more than that is for what you want to have happen, happen. So I ask that you lift up the coming days and weeks to him to pray that his will be done. And that in the wake of that, in the midst of that, we as his people, as his sons and daughters, the hands and feet of Jesus, can find a way to bring his peace, his love, his calm in the middle of the chaos. And then pray for that chaos. Pray for all of our brothers and sisters, all of the people around us, that calmer heads will prevail, that we don't see what, what Ukraine saw or what the pundits say is coming. I don't know what else to do, frankly. It's what we do. We're people of prayer. And so I'm asking you now, as Daniel plays, to find it in your hearts and in your minds to come before the Lord and to lift us as a church up that we might find our role, us as a nation up that we might find his will in the midst of all of this, that we might be a people of love. And I know everybody prays differently. Well, however you pray, feel comfortable to do that. Some people like to come to the altar and kneel. You can do that if you want to. If you want to sit where you are, that's fine too. I'm going to say a small opening prayer and then I'm going to leave it to you all to talk to God about some of this stuff for a few minutes and then we'll come up and we'll share the table together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with quite a bit of anxiety about what we are seeing around us, about what we're hearing, about what we're told may be coming. We just uh, we come before you now, Lord, and we just we hand all that over to you. We bear our hearts to you, our minds, our desires and our wills. So as we come to prayer now, Lord, we just ask that you would fill this place with your spirit, that you would, you would hear our prayers, that you would also help convict us direct us in the ways that we ought to go. Hear our prayers, Lord, now.
before the moment that we see behind us. Jesus was gathered with his disciples around the table, sharing a meal, breaking bread, serving them, speaking the truth to them. He would then come to the garden. He would make his plea with his father, but acknowledge that greater than his desire, greater than his will, was that of the Father. And so he faithfully submitted to the task that he was called. As we come to communion today, we are reminded of the sacrifice, the blood that he spilled, the body that was broken 
for us, the truth that we've been given. And as we take, as we take communion, it's, it's a moment. There are, there are lots of different theologies about what this moment is and what this actually does and what it becomes or doesn't become as you consume it. And I don't pretend to have all the answers about all of that, but what I do know is that this is a moment, a sacrament, along with baptism and for some of us, marriage, that, that we say God is present. But this is one of the ways in which God extends his grace to us. And so as we, as we do this, as we're about to do this today, I ask you that you open your hearts to the grace that he wants to give to you. That you remind yourself and are remembered and you allow him to remind you of this thing that he has done for all of us, the truth that he has given us. And so we pray as he prayed. And we say that this is the blood spilled for you. This is the bread, the body broken for you. And we ask now, dear Lord, that you send your spirit upon these elements and upon our hearts, that you fill us with yourself. The cup of Christ, the blood spilled for you, the body of Christ broken for you. Amen.